This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018, Episode 6. Today we are looking at Darling in the Franks, Episode 17. Well, that was quite an adventure. Uh, several little tensions came together at once and several little things we suspected have borne themselves out. We got some immediate progress on our new goals, we saw the first misstep for the Ape Council, and Hero even gets his first chance to play Rain King. Our team learns that they have not been abandoned, but that this might not be the good news they thought it was. We even learned a little bit about what makes the Franks work, a detail that might help us uncover other parts of this world as well. Before we begin, I think perhaps this is a good time to talk about titles, uh, by which I mean the titles of stories and their subcomponents. Titles hold a special place in art. For some works, like uh, paintings or sculptures or some music, the title will be the only words attached to the work itself. They will be the only specific framing of what a work is or what it may be about. Even in works that have or are entirely words, Titles are still special in that they exist outside the body of the actual work. For example, all of the thoughts and dialogue and action and characters and setting in Darling in the Franks are all knowable by the people in the story. Sum up all of their knowledge and it can contain every single detail of the entire story, except for the work title and the episode titles. They don't know that they're in an anime called Darling in the Franks. Titles exist outside the story and define it. They set its boundaries. To put that another way, titles are the only time in art that the artist themselves is speaking directly to the audience. Even if you have a story in which the narrator seems to address the audience, even breaking the fourth wall, even using the second person you, even in all of that, that is still not the artist speaking, but a speaker, character, or narrator. Their words still exist within the context of the work itself. Only titles supersede this. Titles are the proof that an audience must exist, because they are purely for an audience's sake. This is exactly why the choice of titles is non-trivial. Titles are often used by artists in order to draw attention to some aspect of their work, to elevate in importance a detail, a symbol, a theme, something that the artist feels is key to the meaning in their art. It should be no surprise, then, that titles present a particular difficulty to those who translate works between languages. Over the course of a book or a show or anything with substantial length, tiny discrepancies in translations or variances in shades of meaning all tend to even out, as the audience gains more and more context. Titles, though, are extremely short. Even conspicuously long ones are rarely a full sentence. There's not a lot of room for error. Anime has a nice extra complication for us English speakers. Sometimes works are distributed to us under their original Japanese title. Sometimes they are distributed under a translation of that title. And, owing to its vogueness in Japan and status as lingua franca, 
Sometimes anime are distributed under an English title chosen by the original artists. This may or may not be a good translation, however official. That's even more fun when it's originally distributed under a working translation, then gets a new official translation for a later release that changes the name of the series to something else. Anyway, it can be a mess. All this builds up to the title of today's episode, Eden. Or at least that's the title we are being given. I don't know where the translation for this title originates. Was it translated for us by whoever licensed it to international territories? Crunchyroll's own team of translators? Or the showrunners or the studio themselves? Why does that even matter? Well, invoking Eden is a very different thing than using the word Eden as a synonym for paradise or a garden. If the showrunners invoke Eden on purpose, like the external references to Norse mythology or uh, the Golden Bow, uh, then it means we should expect our story to mirror Eden stories in some way. It changes the way we internalize what we are watching as we attempt to match the patterns together. But if Eden is not being invoked directly by the creators, but is rather a little bit of poetic license on the part of translators, then chasing down Eden parallels becomes at least a waste of time, possibly misleading altogether. As I've said before, humans are incredible pattern-finding machines, but our instinct for it is so strong that we can find patterns where none actually exist, like animals and clouds, or faces and burned toast. Now, I don't speak Japanese, but I do have the internet, and the kanji that designate the original title of this episode do not specifically reference the proper noun of Eden, but rather just mean paradise or a pleasure garden. Eden proper is a word originating outside of Japanese and would therefore be rendered with katakana, uh, as it is in the anime series Eden of the East, which does invoke Eden directly. Of course, that still leaves us with the idea of some non-specific paradisiacal garden. That idea occurs in several places in mythology, going all the way back to the cedar forest in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Lots of paradise myths envision paradise as some kind of extremely bountiful land, like Avalon or the Elysium Fields, where the weather is pleasant year-round and the plants produce food in abundance. Several stories involve trees that produce special fruit, like the golden apples in the Garden of the Hesperides that figure into the downfall of Troy. Um, or the same golden apples in Norse mythology that grant the gods their immortality and youth. In the Eden story as well, there are two special trees. Eating of one grants eternal life, and the other grants knowledge of good and evil. Eating of the second tree is what causes the expulsion of Adam and Eve, and therefore humanity, from the paradise of Eden, dooming them to toil in the world for their survival, and possibly also introducing death to the world in the process. Now, it would be tempting to run down that line of thinking and start drawing parallels to Darling the Franks from that Eden story. After all, the knowledge of childbirth that Kokoro has eaten of might directly cause them to be expelled, and it might even introduce death to their world, depending on uh, how ape reacts. In the Eden story, part of the reason Adam and Eve are expelled is so they won't eat from the other tree and live forever which suddenly sounds like what the adults in Plantation Society have tried to do. There's a lot of tempting parallels here, but I don't think Eden is being invoked specifically. Even if it was, the most familiar version of that story is actually Milton's Paradise Lost, and as it treats sexuality differently than the original Genesis text, 
we could potentially guess wrong about which way the actions in today's episode were meant to parallel an Eden reference. I suspect this is going to cause confusion. So I wanted to address it directly and explain that we will not be trying to tie those two patterns together. As I've said, I try not to make external references unless I think a work is doing so directly. Um, it has too much potential for confusing how we read the text. This idea will come up again later in this video when we talk about heroes change and the story that a lot of people are leaping to connect to it. In order to get there though, we will need to get started, so. Well, you know, I suggested Ikuno as narrator for this episode last time uh, in only a half-serious manner, and yet here we are. Her occasionally doer temperament is a fitting match to the words she shares with us, and what is probably the shortest pre-credit sequence we've had. We are treated to views of their environment as spring begins, even showing us that yellowish-green color that adorns a lot of plants at first. That detail actually reminds me of a poem which suits this point in our story, um, and I'll actually share that with you in a moment. Uh, what Ikuno is saying, though, about how everything ends eventually, and it's only a matter of when, is pretty much exactly that idea of transient beauty embodied by cherry blossoms, which even drift across your view during the scene. The major conflict that might actually cause this end is foreshadowed as she speaks, showing Kokoro surreptitiously reading the maternity book. Ikuno concludes by saying that even as they sense the end is nigh, they spend another day idling in this cradle of their lives. Nicely poetic, that. Uh, and the use of cradle especially suggests that what is coming to an end is a type of infancy, uh, their childhood phase of limited worry and responsibility. Our images are intentionally idyllic and peaceful, but as is tradition, they are undercut with a foreboding hint about what may lurk just around the corner in our narrative. Thus, the poem that has sprung to my mind is one of Robert Frost's. There's a lot of great poetry out there, but most of it can be a little unapproachable, a little hard to internalize if you aren't very familiar. Um, I like Frost, though, because his stuff largely is approachable and does so without being shallow or devoid of resonance. So, even though I promise I won't make this a habit or anything, I want to share with you a short poem of his called Nothing Gold Can Stay. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. We're not going to divert into an analysis of poetry here, uh, as that's way beyond the scope of these videos but hopefully you can understand why that work uh, immediately springs to my mind as I'm watching Akuno's opening thoughts for today's show. One of these golden things at risk of not staying is that greatly increased team spirit that we saw last time. Our squad is solidifying into a single unit, and so one of the things under assault this time is their unity, um, and I will try to point this out as it occasionally crops up. After the credits, we get to see that we were right about Zero Two's horns growing continuously, that they are something she needs to maintain. And just like fingernails, it does not seem to hurt her to do so. The girl's bonding has now extended to include making accessories for Zero Two's horns from the emerging springtime around them. I know they don't have a concept of marriage in this world, 
but this thing that Miku has made strikes me as downright bridal. Um, it would not be out of place at all adorning her hair above a wedding dress. As I've said before, spring and bridal motifs go hand in hand precisely because both have strong association with fertility. Unfortunately, that's the end of all the low stakes moments for this episode, as the parasite's isolation has ended in a way that they definitely did not expect. The nines, well, the nines outside of the odd triplets anyway, uh, the nines have shown up on their doorstep ostensibly to check on the squad's well-being. Perhaps they also have a bridge to sell us. When Nine Alpha states that Papa has been worried sick about them, we get a telling sequence of reactions. Hiro seems suspicious or apprehensive, but Miku and Zorome both react with relief. Even though their absolute faith has been shaken a bit, the idea of being completely abandoned is still more than they're ready to accept. Nine Alpha, seeing this reaction, shows a knowing smirk of his own. I suspect that if there is some intrigue that he initiates in the future among the Thirteeners, he will come to one or both of these guys to instigate it. They continue the poor you rhetoric for a bit, and then indicate that they intend to stay for a time. This sets the squad into hospitality mode, and we next see the groups sharing a meal together. The Nines inform them that all of the other surviving squads have been gathered into a sort of camp where their franks are also being fine-tuned. That sounds to me like a staging ground for an invasion or something, but we don't find anything else out about it this episode. Ichigo rightly wonders why their squad was the sole exception. We of course know that it's the doctor's meddling, but the Nines use this opportunity to assure them that it wasn't Papa's doing, instead casting suspicion towards Nana and Hachi. Driving a wedge between the various members of this team, including Nana and Hachi, may be part of what the Nines are up to during their visit. Miku and Zorome, in their relieved state, also appear to be the most friendly and welcoming of our squad to the Nines. Uh, Zorome especially even tries to insist that they try their home cooking. It may mean nothing, but I get the impression that none of the Nines eat their food. Um, Fatoshi looks like he might have gotten his appetite back though, so uh, that's something. Ichigo reveals that they thought they had come back to take Zero Two. Do you think she was actually worried about this? She's been quite abrupt and defensive with the Nines, the times that they've crossed paths before, uh, even if she eventually lets Nine Alpha's statements about Zero Two get to her. She seems less outright hostile this time around, uh, but that may simply be a function of her being in a more background role. Um, but I am really curious how the squad would have reacted if that was the intent. I'm pretty sure they would argue and resist more than in the past, but how far would they take that? We may get a chance to see soon enough if some of my later speculations turn out to be right. Zero Two, at least, was not happy to see them, and we cut to her and Nine Alpha speaking privately outside. This conversation also seems consistent with the idea of trying to disrupt the group, as Nine Alpha is basically mocking Zero Two for playing at human. He says of the Thirteeners that they are hopelessly imperfect, that they're fundamentally different from her and the other Nines. That seems to imply that they think of themselves as actually perfect, yes? What's more, he is essentially saying that she is more similar to the Nines than either her or the Nines are to the Thirteeners. We already know that the Nines piloting situation is unique, uh, though we can't yet explain how or why. Should we take this statement to assume that the Nines, too, are somehow not exactly human? Zero Two and Strelizia seem more like the 13th squad and their Franks than the Nines do with the M9 Franks. Additionally, only Zero Two seems to have horns or fangs or the problem of devouring her previous partners. 
So I don't think we should jump to the conclusion that the nines are also part Klaxosaur, but there is something fundamentally different, and the way this exchange goes down makes me suspect it is inherent to their being, you know, that it's something at their genetic level or similar. During this insufferable bit, Nine Alpha refers to her as Iota, and she immediately corrects him, Zero Two. Nine Alpha wants to know if this means she's throwing away the Special Forces codename that Papa gave her. Zero Two informs him that her darling gave her this name, and that makes it special to her. Considering it's what she gave Hero as her name back in Episode 1, rather than Nine Iota, I think she has always prized it above whatever Papa may have said. Zero Two is making her choice of loyalties pretty clear here, and maybe she shouldn't have. While it's satisfying a bit to have her spurn and contradict Nine Alpha, tipping your hand to Papa's personal squad may not be the path of wisdom. We'll have to wait to see if this comes back to bite her or not, uh, but I'm not optimistic. Now, Nine Alpha's words about her playing human and being different from them may still be weighing on her mind at the beginning of the next scene, as she is absentmindedly staring at the candle flame beside her ongoing art project. Hiro snaps her out of it to ask about the decoration that Miku made for her. She gets self-conscious about him staring at it at first. This from the same person who thought nothing of being seen naked way back at the beginning. It seems it's still only things to do with her horns that bother her, uh, that she doesn't want attention drawn to. There is still some of that insecurity and fear inside her. A little flattery from Hiro eases her down a bit, adorably, uh, but thinking about her own horns reminds her of something. A new set of horns emerging from Hiro. So, this again. I said at the beginning of this video that humans' natural pattern-seeking ways sometimes causes them to see patterns where none actually exist. Uh, we have spoken before about the Red Oni and Blue Oni story and its relevance to Darling and the Franks. It is an external reference that is not being specifically invoked by the show, which means I normally would not have mentioned it, uh, but we did talk about it in episode 12, partially because I wanted to go ahead and assert that while the Red Oni, Blue Oni characterization trope seemed to be in play between them, the narrative story of the Red, Blue Oni did not seem to match our story. Even then, I said that Hero turning into the same kind of thing as her does still not mean the story is being invoked, uh, something that I reiterated last episode. The Red Oni, Blue Oni story is not about someone becoming the same thing as an outsider. It's about two outsiders sacrificing their relationship so that one of them can be less of an outsider. But like I said then, if Hero becomes the same kind of thing as Zero Two, um, especially if he's blue themed, like seems to be the case, then it's possible that the Red and Blue Oni story could be told, but starting from this point. It absolutely still has not been invoked. For Hero to be the Blue Oni in a retelling of that story, it means that they begin as outsiders who are companions, and sometime in the future, Hero will sacrifice their ability to stay together in order for Zero Two to join some group that she wants to join. Actually joining Humanity and Truth? Joining Klaxosaur Society instead? Being able to bear young, as comes up later in the episode? Or, like I said last time, the story may already have happened with the Klaxosaur Princess actually playing the role of the Blue Oni. Anyway, as of yet, only the characterization part of this has actually happened, and that has actually waned of late. These last two episodes especially have seen a very tame, very lovey-dovey Zero Two that contrasts a lot with her personality up until this point. Well, 
let's not get too hung up on this. Um, the thing that I think is actually really eye-opening about this exchange is that it's something these two have talked about before, but that conversation happened off stage. You understand? Like, most of the time in the series, we see bits of conversation happen in front of us so that we as an audience can have the information. This means we know more about what's going on among the characters than any one character themselves knows. We get to see the Ape Council talk about themselves, we get to see the Doctor and Nana and Hachi talk, and then we get to see the private conversations between individual parasites. We even occasionally get to see their thoughts and memories. However, something that becomes readily apparent as you look backward over the series is that a lot of these characters don't talk to each other, um, at least about things that they really should discuss. Zorome apparently never brings up what happened the day he was in an adult's apartment. Kokoro never brings up the maternity book that she's had for 10 episodes, which will backfire on her in a little bit. Zero Two and Hero both could have saved everyone a lot of trouble by explaining things back in episode 14. Heck, it seems that they still haven't told the rest of the team that they met in their youth, or that they had their memories manipulated. Then of course, there's the caginess of Dr. Franks with basically everyone else, which ends up putting Nana in a bad spot later this episode as well. Now, like I mentioned last time, the situation of the squad's upbringing means that a lot of behavior that seems abnormal to us will not seem that way to them. They were brought up in a relatively unfriendly and dehumanizing world, and so hesitancy in sharing and connecting with each other has a type of consistency to it. This goes double for Zero Two, so even though I think she is the biggest culprit of withholding useful information, I also understand her reluctance the most. However, the constant lack of communication is also a way of generating drama and tension in the story, and sometimes I think it strays a bit into situations that are contrived for the sake of the drama or the plot. That is why these two discovering the surprise of Hero's horns off-screen is so interesting to me. It suggests other conversations and discoveries that some characters have worked out, but are not yet revealed to the audience. Suddenly, we don't understand more than the squad does, and that is a different kind of dramatic tension entirely. It means that they may make plans in the future that we won't know about until we see them unfold, something I wouldn't have thought was likely before now. Anyway, we do at least get to see them have this conversation, where they ponder the significance of his horns. Zero Two tries to guess why it occurred, and then seems to harbor some guilt about it, that she drastically altered his destiny. Quite different from the Zero Two in Episode 5 that knew very well she was changing Hero, no? Hero doesn't let her succumb to this guilt, though, tipping his head forward to touch his horns with hers. This made me think of the scene back in Episode 4, just before Hero decides to rebel and confess all kinds of embarrassing things to her. Hero is caught off guard by the gesture then, but I wonder now if it is not a kind of subconscious display of affection, as that appears to be how it's used in this scene. Zero Two certainly receives it as an intimate action. Hero is actually happy about the transformation, which shouldn't surprise us at all. He says it's like he's the same as her now, but her subtle reaction to this makes me think she's not so sure, or else she harbors some apprehension that she doesn't think she can share with him. Instead, she changes the subject to the picture book, explaining to Hero about how she swallowed it in her youth to keep it from being taken from her. She reveals that she was told she could become human by killing Klaxosaurs, but that she shouldn't have believed them. 
This plays over the camera zooming in on the part of the picture book where the Beast Princess is having her wings ripped off in order to become human. She seems convinced that this is not actually what caused her to become more human-like, but she offers no alternative. I think I might have one, though. Um, I've talked about this idea a bit in the comments before, um, but I think I'll spell it out more properly in speculation later on. Um, if I'm right, then I think it's something that she herself has also figured out, which explains her momentary thoughtfulness in the scene. She then changes that subject by demanding that Hero show her his own efforts at contributing a page to the storybook. It quickly becomes clear who the artist in the family is. However, she breaks out of her mockery once noticing Hero's embarrassment and instead approves the page, hugging it to her chest and saying that she loves this picture. That's a pretty human response, no? She doesn't love it for its artistic merit, I'm pretty sure. She loves it because Hero made it, made it to contribute to her project. It's his effort that she loves, regardless of the quality of the result. That's probably love, I think. I guarantee you this picture or this page will come up again later. Interesting as well is that our idea last time about them possibly changing the storybook might have some merit to it after all. This of course implies that their story can develop in a way other than the original Beast and Prince story. They may even be self-aware about the similarities. Perhaps they refuse to be slaves to destiny. In our next bit, one of our nines happens upon Kokoro while snooping about the place. Kokoro is unfortunately too trusting to be suspicious, and not mindful enough of what kind of contraband the maternity book is. The knights pour over this discovery, and we can tell that it's going to be trouble. It seems the book is full of things that Papa hasn't taught anyone, and Nine Alpha's expression says that there will be hell to pay. Ominous music builds over this discussion, and then continues over Kokoro playing with the doll back in her room. We know that this is headed for confrontation. That tension stays with us as we cut to the next day, and Kokoro continuing the haircutting tradition with Mitsuru. It seems her surprising forwardness with kissing him last time has not driven him away, but the opposite. As they discuss the possibility that the Nines herald their departure, Mitsuru confesses that leaving will make him sad because the two of them only begin spending time together like this after arriving. This is probably as much of a confession as Mitsuru can make at this point, uh, not really understanding things, and it's enough encouragement for Kokoro to take a further step. Now, just like with the kiss, Kokoro is going about this the wrong way, but as I tried to explain at length last time, she is just like the rest of them in being a victim of the deliberate ignorance that they are mired in. She is no example to follow outside of Hero and Zero Two, and Mitsuru additionally has no idea how to react to her advance. Neither has the understanding of body language and social cues one would naturally acquire in a less manufactured society. Kokoro just knows how she feels and the textbook knowledge that she gained from the maternity book. Touching Mitsuru and realizing fully how different their bodies are intrigues her and helps confirm the things that she's learned. She is trying to explain all this to Mitsuru, but he doesn't have the context and is only recently even embracing the idea of making himself vulnerable to others. Basically, we shouldn't be surprised that this went down like this at all. Both Kokoro's misunderstanding about how to approach it and Mitsuru's disengagement are completely consistent with their characterizations. Really, only Kokoro's daring might seem surprising, but as she does not fully understand how daring she's being, uh, and the fact that Mitsuru himself is a major catalyst for how much more assertive she's become, it still has a consistency to its logic. I will bring more of this up in both theme and speculation. 
Mitsuru stops her advance, but there is no chance for her to try a different tack as Otome crashes the party. His naivete is on full display here, asking if they were trying to stick their bodies together, uh, if they were imitating Hiro in Zero Two. There's still such a fundamental void in their knowledge of all things romantic and sexual. We have guessed for a really long time that this was by design, and later this episode we will finally have this confirmed. After Zotome leaves, to tattle as it turns out, Mitsuru demands to know why Kokoro would do that out of nowhere. But it's not out of nowhere. We know this already, but Mitsuru is surprised to learn that she's been thinking about this for a long time. It is that revelation, rather than her actual actions, that I think are on his mind as we transition to the next scene, where he has stopped in the middle of his water-fetching task to be lost in thought. If only he had someone more experienced in matters of the heart to speak to. We time skip slightly here to Mitsuru and Hiro bathing, and Mitsuru has evidently just finished laying out his encounter with Kokoro, perhaps even several of their encounters. Just the fact of this conversation reveals that post-haircut Mitsuru really is a changed person. Not only is he willing to speak to Hiro like this, lowering his guard, he's troubled enough about someone else that he wants a sounding board outside of himself. Hiro picks up on this immediately. What's more, he finishes their conversation from the hospital, taking the blame for Mitsuru's path because of the promise he broke. Key to this change is the interest in someone else. As Hiro said, Mitsuru had been distancing himself from them until now. Taking an interest in Kokoro is not just about him developing romantic feelings, it's also about his wholesale change into a person who isn't only looking inward. Hiro goes on to say that wanting to know someone better is probably what it means to love someone. Taken together, Hiro is essentially explaining empathy and its key place in loving another. Essential to both processes is looking outwardly at someone else in a manner similar to how you might look inward at yourself, trying to understand them, to get inside their mind. Hiro does help Mitsuru understand his feelings. When I alluded to Hiro getting his first chance to play Rain King, this is what I was referring to. Uh, we'll explore that a little more fully in theme. Their conversation ends with Mitsuru saying that he's glad they got to have a nice long chat after so long. With that, I think the healing that began in the hospital room has probably finished, and they can start a new friendship going forward from here. They return to the house together to find the rest of the squad assembled and awaiting them, brought together thanks to Zorome's big mouth. Pretty amusing that he still doesn't quite get it, as he asked if boys and girls getting all clingy was the cool thing to do. He should have just asked Fatoshi, as his expression says that he certainly understands what's going on here. Unsurprisingly, the girls are unsurprised. Ichigo and Miku both seem pleased, and Kokoro has a slight blush at being the topic of this conversation. The girls seem way more prepared for this situation than the guys, which sort of jives with my own recollection of being a teenager. Fatoshi especially is unprepared, and asks after the nature of their relationship with all the subtlety of a jackhammer. The revelation that they have kissed is not one that he takes well, Nobody tell him about the end of the episode. Just shh. Before Fatoshi can make things even more awkward though, the Nine show up to try to sow discord amongst our squad once again. They reveal the maternity book and Kokoro's possession of it, as well as the fact that they should know very well it's not something that she should have. Kokoro's tendency to avoid confrontation and the general parasite issue of not opening up to each other have now come back to bite her. 
Had she shared this book and its contents with others before now, this wouldn't have been a situation where she could be singled out, could be left without someone else who understood. She had only just started to broach the subject with Mitsiru, in probably the wrong way, but he does at least start to try to say something. However, being put on the spot like this by the Nines means that she has to explain to the rest not just what the book says, but also why she has such interest in it. This will mean revealing her desire to the Nines as well, which will probably bring them sorrow in the future. However, we should probably give her a lot of credit for this in terms of her development. Like I said last time, she has been slowly becoming more comfortable with confrontation thanks to Mitsiru's influence, even if she isn't always the best at choosing the moments to show it. In this moment though, faced with the accusation of the Nines and what I'm pretty sure is another attempt to divide them, Kokoro turns away from them to address her squad and put her heart's desire into words. And she does not mince words this time. Nine Alpha's expression changes immediately. This isn't the way that he thought this was going to go. Having put that desire out there too, uh, Kokoro has to explain what it means, finally giving the squad the understanding about reproduction and sexuality that has been withheld from them all along. Nine Alpha still tries to divide here, pointing out that Papa had banned it, something that gets the expected anxious reaction from Zotome. But Kokoro does not back down from this appeal to authority, instead challenging the idea that something is wrong with having babies at all, and disrupting the squad's illusion about how they came to be. The Nines especially don't like this part. Kokoro then infers that this must be why they have boys and girls. And saying this makes Ikuno react in a way that indicates surprise and perhaps understanding. That will matter in a moment. Kokoro then draws a parallel between this childbearing desire and Hiro's speech from the end of last episode, that the squad can have a purpose outside of piloting the Franks. So, Nine Alpha must then resort to character assassination, attacking Kokoro and calling her absolutely disgusting. He tries to flip her argument about the naturalness of having babies on its head, saying that humans have evolved past needing their reproductive functions. Then he says something that I don't quite understand. Reject that, meaning the abandonment of reproducing, and we'll all have to go back to conforming to one gender. Okay, so there was a time before when humanity was conforming to one gender? Really? And what's more, humanity stopped doing that after they gave up on their reproductive functions? I mean, help me out here, but wouldn't conforming to one gender by itself necessitate giving up reproductive functions? How would having gender but no reproduction make sense if reintroducing reproduction meant going back to one gender? Are we having translation issues here? Because he says the, we'll all have to go back to conforming to one gender bit, like he considers that a bad thing, Yet his very next set of statements is about what a pain gender is. I can't parse the intent here unless we are missing some major information about humanity's past. Anyway, continuing his statements about gender, he says that it's an annoyance that's only tolerated to operate the Franks, that that is all it is. Mitsuru begins to argue this point, hesitantly, but Ikuno decides to jump into the conversation with a much stronger argument. She's angry and maybe frustrated, but she doesn't counter Nine Alpha's assertion that gender is a pain. She asks, so what if it's a pain? It seems she might find gender a pain herself, but so what? What do we think is going on here? 
Well, I pointed out a moment ago that she seemed surprised a bit at Kokoro's revelation that the whole point of boys and girls might be the continuing of the species. While Akuno occasionally demonstrates greater understanding than a lot of her squad mates, I don't think we can assume that reproduction is something any of them knew about before Kokoro found that book. But Akuno has almost certainly noticed the attraction between members of the squad. She is a girl who likes girls, and I imagine she knows that she is alone among them in same gender attraction. No one can miss Hiro and Zero Two's behavior, and she was unsurprised about Mitsuru and Kokoro. Because of her own feelings toward Ichigo, she definitely knows how Ichigo feels about Hiro, and has probably surmised Goro's feelings as well. Fatoshi has also recently been pretty forthcoming about how he feels. Can't fail to notice the pattern there, but it could just be coincidence, right? Ikuno already tried piloting with Ichigo to no avail. Not only do they not connect, but Ikuno barely registered on the meter when acting as a stamen, as though she fundamentally could not perform the role of stamen. What do you think she's made of this in light of not knowing any purpose behind gender? Was she accepting that she was just unfortunate in the same way that Ichigo and Goro and Fatoshi are unfortunate? Without any reason why most of her squad would be attracted to the opposite sex, Perhaps she could convince herself that Ichigo could return her affection one day, that gender was something related to the Franks only, and attraction something a bit more changeable. Now though, given some other older reason for gender distinction, maybe she is having to face the music. Ichigo is probably only going to like boys, while she is probably only going to like girls. And since the boy-girl attraction pattern she has noticed turns out to have some greater purpose, she can probably guess that other girls who like girls may be in short supply. What a bitter pill this is. If she really is just putting this all together, I think I can understand being flush with frustration and anger. If one's attraction is often limited by gender, then gender can be a pain indeed if you find yourself with an uncommon combination. So Ikuno might be expected to actually agree with 9-alpha here. She would have an easier time of it if she liked guys, or if she was a guy, right? Or better yet, if gender wasn't a thing, and everyone could potentially like everyone else, yeah? But she rejects him and his idea, with extreme prejudice. This is an assertion and validation of both of these parts of herself. The part of her that likes girls, and the part of her that is a girl. Just because Ikuno likes girls doesn't mean she's less of a girl. It's part of her identity, an important part. Treating gender as an annoying, necessary evil is attacking both of these truths about her, who she is and what she loves. She is understandably displeased. Of course, Nine Alpha doesn't shrink from his words, but doubles down on his idea of evolved humanity, who have cast aside being ruled by emotions because it serves zero purpose in life. Well. If that's not a statement just asking to be countered by later actions, I don't know what is. For now though, it escalates the situation to the point that our professional interrupters Nana and Hachi finally break their long silence. They separate Kokoro away from the rest in the little meeting room that we've seen a few times. Nana lets us know that she didn't want the Nines to show up because of fearing something like this, though their hands were tied thanks to Papa's authority. I think this suggests that they don't necessarily have any loyalty to Papa or his goons over the Doctor, even if they do still recognize their authority. Hachi explains their absence to Kokoro, that the Doctor ordered them not to contact the parasites during the previous month, 
Interestingly, it was referred to as their final test, whatever that may mean. Nana informs Kokoro that despite the absence, they do know what Kokoro was trying to do with Mitsuru. I wish we had an idea of what their surveillance looks like at this point. I mean, we've seen video feeds aplenty, but how common are cameras exactly? I can't remember seeing them anywhere obvious on the grounds. This might be pretty important after the events at the end of this episode. Like, is there any chance that their apparent violation can remain a secret for a time? And I'm not sure I like the implication of a live feed from Kokoro's bedroom either, you know? Anyway, Nana addresses Kokoro's desire to have a baby, saying that that is something nobody is allowed to even speak of, let alone do. All right there, big brother. Brother, papa? Big papa? I'm not gonna call him that. Well, I think all of our assumptions about infertility in this world and the intentional state of sexual ignorance for our parasites are all pretty much solidly confirmed now. I mean, we've been going along with that like they were since it fit everything else, but this statement from Nana leaves very little room for interpretation. It only took 15 extra episodes since we brought it up, but hey, it's still good to know. And there is still plenty we don't know, as Kokoro rightly asks why in the world their bodies would still have reproductive organs if that was the case. And Nana delivers, because they're necessary for piloting the Franks. That's why only children have them. So, all of our assumptions about the intrinsic link between sexuality and piloting that we've also been waiting to have confirmed are also true? I have plenty to say about this revelation and what it may mean for other parts of our story when we get to speculation. For now, we're kind of on a roll. Quick, Kokoro, ask her something else. Hey, that's a good question. Didn't Nine Alpha say they were evolving past emotions too? What do you say to that, Nana? Uh, sorry we asked? You know, I felt like there was more than just static in that little glimpse we just saw. How about super duper slow motion on that? Okay, that was definitely a glimpse of someone in a pistol uniform. With a little rough work in Photoshop with our two best frames here, we get something like this. That's definitely a pistol seeming to lean over something or someone with a hand extended. This is actually enough to tell where they are, too. They are just in front of where a stamen sits in a Frank's cockpit. Just rotate the whole thing a bit, and there you go. If you look at this image from inside Delphinium, you can see how the odd geometric patterns behind them match, especially the orange lights on the sides and the strange shape of the seat. Rotated like this, too, you can tell that the pistol is actually kneeling over whatever it is she has her hand on. In context, it seems pretty likely that this is a stamen sprawled on the ground beside the chair. I would guess on his side, facing toward the pistol, kind of the reverse of where Mitsuru ended up after tackling Kokoro out of stampede mode. The point of view seems to be from inside the little console that pistols are usually looking into, so I guess this may actually be footage rather than a first-person memory. Now we could guess with some confidence that this is Nana, and in a moment we will have it confirmed that she was once a parasite. This image is all green though, and the face is intentionally hard to make out. But there is a distorted set of muted color shots from the same memory, and you can see in this one that whoever this is definitely has some auburn hair. Considering that it was a question about emotions that sparked this reaction, I think we are probably seeing some really emotional moment for Nana, yeah? Uh, one that they have erased for some reason? 
Her stamen being injured or killed while she fusses over him seems like the most obvious scenario, um, but I'm sure we'll get to find out more later. Anyway, whatever it is seems quite traumatic for Nana, who I'm pretty sure just smacked Kokoro. Kokoro is understandably taken aback, and Hachi dismisses her quickly to leave the two of them alone. Hachi seems to know what's going on, only asking Nana when it started. She explains that watching the parasites go about their lives left her so irritated, but before explaining how that might be the culprit, we discover that Nine Alpha is eavesdropping. He suggests that she has relapsed into puberty, something that Nana vehemently denies, and casually refers to Nana and Hachi's emotional indoctrination when they were parasites. He further suggests that relapsing means that Hachi should replace her with a new Nana, a statement that alarms her. He then chastises them for getting up to mischief with the doctor and informs them that he'll be notifying Papa and the rest. All the while, he keeps this self-satisfied smile on his face. What a brat. Of course, this too is consistent with an attempt to sow division amongst this group, trying to suggest they oust Nana, separating Nana and Hachi, and separating both of them from Dr. Franks. This works at least partially, as Hachi reports to Dr. Franks and indicates that continuing the test will be difficult. Dr. Franks seems more satisfied with the intriguing data from the test, the development of humanity's original reproductive instincts. Now, from this exchange with Nine Alpha, we confirm Nana and Hachi's original status as parasites, something we speculated long ago since they walk around without masks. The emotional indoctrination referred to seems to be related to the advent or the effects of puberty, so I guess the intervening that they did not do to Squad 13 must be this very emotional indoctrination. This would mean that Ikuno's outburst earlier will further clue the Nines into the fact that Squad 13 has been run differently. If you remember, their simultaneous pubescence was something that Dr. Franks wanted hidden from Ape back in Episode 8. I feel like there's a chance that Dr. Franks will have to answer to Ape now uh, in the near future. Before moving on though, should we assume that Nana's relapse while watching the parasites means that she might have loved someone herself once? She was irritated watching them go about their lives, but considering how Kokoro's question sets her off, and considering one of the things they must have been watching is Kokoro Mitsuru and Hero Zero Two being affectionate, is it a stretch that something like envy or regret or buried pain is what has really bloomed inside of Nana? If we're right about what that distorted memory showed, is it possible that the stamen incapacitated there was her partner and perhaps lover? Won't that be interesting if she ends up recovering more of those memories? Next up, we get our actual first look into the Grand Crevasse. It's been quite the ordeal to get to this point, so let's see what kind of payoff we get. Or, wait. This is inside the crevasse, right? But I don't see the remnants of the wall or anything else, and none of our wide shots of the broken dome show anything like a smoking blue volcano. Is the Claxosaur princess somewhere else completely? I mean, that would make sense if they had been in contact before now. Interesting. Either way, it's our first look into how the other half lives. One thing is for sure, they really like the color blue. Like, how would Zero Two even fit into the society? Our ape envoys comment on the difference between the Claxosaur and human civilizations. I can't tell if this statement is meant to sound so much like an outside observer or not. Like, human civilization rather than our civilization, for example. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a sec. The main thing is that, just as we supposed from the whole idea of negotiating last time, 
The Klaxosaurs are not some mindless horde of subterranean kaiju, but an organized society. The envoys are surprised that they still possess such technology. Such a way of phrasing suggests that they knew they had technology long ago and had assumed some kind of decline. This adds yet more intrigue to the mystery of how this conflict began and how the world used to be. The princess herself holds court in a suitably intimidating manner. It appears that she can manipulate the legs or the tentacles or whatever that emerge from her back into a throne if she wants. Neat trick. So are the giant serpents. This seems like a good place to mention that Norse mythology has a pair of serpents in its cosmology. One of them encircles the world ocean, and one of them gnaws at the root of the world tree. They aren't together though, like these two, so we'll leave off trying to tie them directly to the mythos. Um, just because we have some Norse mythology references doesn't mean we should necessarily look for a one-to-one -one correlation with every character or event, um, but I'll throw out that much in passing. The envoys pontificate a bit before demanding surrender. We learn that the conflict with the Klaxosaurs is nearly a century old, so we do get that detail filled in. In response to their demands, the princess produces a cry that seems to speak directly to their minds. Some kind of telepathy could certainly explain how the Klaxosaurs coordinate with what they do. The show doesn't tell us what the words sent directly to the brain are. What is actually interesting here is that one of the ape council members is not affected. The guards and the taller one are, they immediately hold their heads in pain and presumably can hear what she is saying. The shorter one is shocked to find out this is happening though, and charges the princess. The tall one tries to implore him to stop, but to no avail. She dispatches him without even shifting in her seat, and her attendants deal with the rest. It's clear from the taller envoy's reaction that this attack on her was not the plan. So why did the shorter one do so, and why was he not affected by her telepathic whatever? She actually removes his mask at the end here, and of course we don't get to see squat, but she smirks and calls him a human wannabe. What does that mean? Well, way back when I proposed the beehive analogy in episode five, one of the things I said should be true for that metaphor to hold up is that the parasites and adults should be different kinds of things, and that the ape council, the queen bees, should also be a different thing from either the parasites or the adults. The idea that they're different is something we still have on our speculation board. The difference in having reproductive organs or not certainly fulfills the parasites and adults being different, something that we kind of already gathered, and it's possible that the princess comment here at the end further suggests that the ape council is not really human themselves. But why was only one of them unaffected by her mentalism? Is he the odd man out, or are they? His actions ended up being against the other's attempt and seemed to be triggered by the telepathy. Was he trying to end an attack on his comrades, or was he worried about what she might be saying? I pointed out that there are two ape council members facing away from one another in our new opening, and I also pointed out that there seems to be a theme of separation to that opening. One of the other pairs there are Dr. Franks and Nine Alpha, who truly do seem to be two forces pulling on the parasites in different directions, like we guessed back in episode seven. The other is Nanan Hachi, who seem headed for separation of some kind after this episode. Should we conclude then, based on the conflicting actions of these two in the princess audience chamber, that there is some kind of division in the council? That there are perhaps more than one faction present? Or more than one kind of being? Our mysteries have increased. Finally, we return to Mistletine, 
where Mitsuru is trying to sort out his thoughts in the greenhouse alone, while the rest of the squad is pondering Kokoro's actions and words. Miku wishes she had confided in her, and I do too, but Ikuno says that everyone has things they can't talk about. Poor Ikuno, I wonder if she will ever get to open up to someone. The squad wonders about this whole idea of making babies. Sotome is pretty irritated by the whole thing. Even if he's still relieved that Papa hasn't forgotten them, even if he still thinks his Papa is some benevolent authority, he has to be annoyed at knowing that there is information withheld from them, or even that they were lied to about their origins. Considering the Nines didn't actually disagree with what Kokoro was saying earlier, I think we can safely bet that the parasites are not created by Papa like they are told, and are probably born the old-fashioned way, perhaps with, you know, some kind of artificial meddling. I will make some more guesses on that later on. Hiro then weighs in, believing they may indeed be able to do something that Papa hasn't told them about. It's a curious way to word that. I think he has more in mind than just their potential to have offspring. This gets them thinking about the future, something that, again, they have mostly neglected in their singular purpose to pile the Franks and die in service to the adults and Papa. Hiro's speech last time got the ball rolling on them thinking about a purpose beyond that, and Kokoro's revelation this time is only going to spur this new idea onward. Zero Two weighs in here, admitting her envy that they can bear young and leave something for the future. Her body can't do that, she says. This honestly isn't something I'd considered before now, owing to how little we know about Klaxosaurs and how close to being human she actually seems to be. Can Klaxosaurs not reproduce, or maybe not all of them? Or is it her hybrid status that causes it? I mean, didn't we just learn that reproductive organs are necessary for piling the Franks? Or is it something else? I've got guesses on that later as well. What is clear though, from this and the bit from the storybook at the end of last episode, is that Zero Two has slowly grown from loving her darling to loving humans in general. While this matches her development into someone who is more human on the inside as well as the outside, I can't help but feel like this sets her up to eventually make choices for the good of humanity instead of just for the sake of Hero or the squad. Uh, but we will see. Zero Two's statement about their ability to decide their futures with their own hearts plays over a return to Mitsuru, who it seems has made a decision of his own with his own heart. He seeks out Kokoro, alone and weeping in her room. She apologizes for how she went about things, but won't accept that she has nothing to apologize for that she wasn't forcing him. It is true that she hadn't quite gotten his consent, and his hesitancy could easily be taken as disinterest. Both of their inexperience threatened to turn this moment into the end of things between them. Kokoro seems to expect that outcome. There is a time and a place for being assertive, though, and luckily Mitsuru knows that this is one of them. He embraces and chastises her for trying to decide on her own, for not leaning on him. These are very things that she has said to him in the past. Then he confesses that he wants to make her happy. That is a pretty good indication of how he feels. Robert A. Heinlein has a quote that I think is appropriate here. Love is that condition in which the happiness of another person is essential to your own. Now Kokoro wants to think about the future. She wants the chance to create a new life. It will make her happy. Little surprise to what happens next, as the two are finally on the same page with each other. Before we can celebrate, though, Ikuno echoes our opening narration once more. Everything comes to an end eventually. She continues over a scene of our other happy couple, drawing them in to this ominous proclamation. Zero Two has drawn a new page of her own to go with heroes. 
With a bouquet and something very much like a veil, this image has a strong bridal vibe to it, just like the hair decoration that she continues to wear. It seems they really are writing further into the story, but Yukuno's words do not leave one feeling optimistic. And she continues. As for what comes after that, we know nothing. Nothing at all. That's a pretty great addendum to play over the image of Mitsuru and Kokoro sleeping beside one another. It's true. They know nothing. Not about what they're doing, or about what comes after. This is true both for reproducing itself, and the repercussions it may have for them and the others. What a contrast this foreboding is to what otherwise would be a peaceful and satisfying scene. Now I want to pause and reflect on how they've handled this for a moment. I said a long time ago that I did not think this series' use of sexuality was fanservice or titillation, that sexuality was an integral part of the themes that they were setting out, uh, and in time, the character journeys that they wanted to explore as well. We now know that reproductive function and Frank's piloting are linked in-universe, and we also know that this constant theme of fertility is intentional both in theme and now in narrative. This scene is a kind of validation of all these ideas to me. If they were truly out for adding fan service, is this how they would have handled it? There's no suggestive action or images, there's no titillating nudity or audio, there's no details whatsoever of the act itself. And yet, they don't leave it vague. They give us this image in bed to make sure we understand that this definitely happened. But the treatment is sweet. It's affectionate and intimate and innocent, and yet it's also serious and full of gravity. Yukuno's ill-omened words playing over the top of it. Now, this action is likely to have some real consequences. If the series wanted to treat sex lightly, or if they wanted to treat it as a joke, this scene would not have gone down the way it did. Now, I have no illusions that anime fandom at large will manage to treat this as seriously as the creators have. Rarely does a mainstream anime show even this much sex explicitly. Nudity or near nudity or raunchy humor, sure, but the actual act? It's rare and mostly happens off stage if it does happen. Putting it on stage and giving it such focus and weight, that's pretty unusual. But it really is the culmination of the importance the sexuality has had in this series, both as an advancement of the pervasive fertility themes and as a believable, beautiful destination for character journeys. Enough about that. Just know that I'm incredibly pleased with this development, um, the way it was handled, and the likelihood of it altering the journeys of our characters. Just imagine if every non-comedy show treated sexuality with such care. Finally, we get a little bit of a stinger, as Papa and another ape council member discuss the Klaxosaur princess choosing to go down the path of annihilation. These are the two that face away from each other in the credits, by the way, to connect this back to my earlier statements. Evidently, this path of annihilation will mean they will feel the pain of having their Earth scorched by their own creation. Here is a situation in which I really wish I knew exactly what the original words were uh, and their connotation. Is their Earth referring to their land, to the underground, or to the planet in some large-scale sense? We will have to wonder what the Klaxosaur's own creation is, but I would bet it has something to do with those keys. The last bit is the Nines showing up to tattle, but we knew that was going to happen. Um, its timing here at the very end simply suggests that the next thing that happens in series will be the reaction of the Council to their news. There's a number of ways that conflict could play out, so let's go on to goals and conflicts 
and see what our narrative looks like now. So in goals, we have a fair bit. Uh, Kokoro's new goal of pursuing Mitsuru, well, she should give the other goal holders on this board some lessons. But we're also going to add a new goal for her of having a baby. I mean, she said it directly. But we're going to keep it separate from her goal of being with Mitsuru, because I'm assuming that he's more to her than a donor. Um, I think both of these goals are going to be hard for her in the future. I added a squad goal of life beyond piloting last time. The idea that each of them might now be looking for their purpose uh, in life aside from their status as Frank's pilots. Kokoro basically went first here, not just having this goal of motherhood, but putting it out there for everyone else to see and internalize as well. By tying it into the idea of leaving something for the future, um, or even thinking about the future at all, she has helped galvanize this shared goal further, increasing its adoption and success among the others. Ape's unknown goal might slowly become clear in the near future. Uh, negotiations have broken down, so we will soon see what the Path of Annihilation step will look like. What and where and why this unfolds will tell us a lot about their ultimate desire. Uh, finally, Dr. Franks' unknown goal. We had guessed before that it must be related to letting the 13ers experience puberty together well, without any interference. This time, he comments on the result of the test, highlighting the development of humanity's original reproductive instincts. Whether he just wanted to see if humanity still had it in them, or if he's planning his next move based off this discovery, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think we can be sure that the parasite's instinct for sexuality and reproduction is key to whatever it is that he's after. In conflicts then, the blue heart, yellow blood conflict, um, Hero has baby blue horns. Uh, this answers our question of whether sorification would continue or not, even if they stopped piloting. We still have this under conflict because the outcome is unknown, but this could eventually turn out to be something that works to their advantage. I don't know how exactly, but neither Hero nor Zero Two seems upset about it. Not sure how the other 13ers would take it though, and I suspect they don't either since it still seems to be a secret. We'll wait and see. In the Klaxosaur threat, the final warning was rejected. Uh, maybe that was always going to happen? Maybe the attack against the princess will change the course of things. Either way, I can imagine the princess doing something else unexpected now since she just showed the capacity to surprise them. Finally, we'll add a new conflict. The jig is up. Um, a lot of the things that have been hidden from Papa about the 13ers, uh, Nana and Hachi, and Dr. Franks are about to be laid bare. I think we can expect some reaction from the council to disrupt their lives, possibly separating them. We'll put the reactions to the 13ers unique circumstance under their own conflict going forward uh, until we're more certain how we need to divide them into maybe separate conflicts. In theme, we have a few obvious updates um, and then some more nuanced ones. Um, nature versus artifice. Learning that the parasites have reproductive organs but no one else, combined with Nine Alpha's statement about evolving past the need for them, really fixes our parasites further to the nature side of things in their society. That they could naturally fall into their reproductive instincts as Dr. Franks was testing solidifies that place in this tension. We don't really know where the Klaxosaurs will fall on this now that we have a small peek into their society, but I'm sure that is going to have to wait on the origin of this whole conflict. In individual versus society, well, 
Kokoro's desire to have a baby is the most taboo thing that anyone suggested so far. Um, I'll elaborate in speculation, but based on Nana and Nine Alpha's reactions, bucking society on this is sure to bring society's wrath down on her, possibly even Mitsuru or the other 13ers. If this goal remains strong in her, then she will have to reject society in the same way that we have anticipated that Hero and Zero Two will. In Power of Names, Zero Two's clear rejection of Iota over Zero Two is itself a rejection of Papa over Hero, um, and I think we all understand that. But it also speaks to the Nine's sense of identity. Papa gave them their Special Forces code names. Embracing those names is embracing their role as Papa's strong right arm. The Nine's origin is also a mystery to us, but the way that Nine Alpha says this to Zero Two suggests to me that they may have been gathered at different points, that being in the Nines and having the designation is a high honor, rather than something they are just programmed to be. If so, they are probably all the more loyal and determined. In fertility symbols, uh, well, there's the obvious one. Nothing stands in for fertility like the act of mating, especially if the driving desire isn't necessarily the sex itself, but the potential to reproduce. But Hero getting a chance to play Rain King is what I actually want to talk about. If you recall, Rain King Hero is how I'm referring to the idea that Hero may supplant our ape council in their place as priest kings responsible for the world's fertility. Doing so would metaphorically mean that he is the one responsible for making it rain, i.e. responsible for returning fertility to the land. In today's specific example, not only is the squad at large increasingly aware of their sexuality because of Hiro and Zero Two's example, but it is Hiro's talk with Mitsuru that leads to the act. Mitsuru is sort of reborn in that moment himself, getting the change I think he was hoping for with the act of cutting his hair. It's important that he actually started his own process of change. Hiro alone didn't cause this in him. However, Hiro does elucidate the concept of loving someone for him. The two of them are even submerged in water while they have this conversation. Hiro's words and the understanding Mitsuru derived from them about himself and Kokoro are almost certainly what helped him resolve to go to her and to make things right between them. Knowing that he loved her and wanted to make her happy leads naturally to their union. In this small way, Hiro indirectly restored fertility, literally, to those in his squad. Kokoro also helps expand our understanding of this theme. During her first encounter with Mitsuru this episode, when she is speaking about how boys and girls can create new life, she makes this statement, I believe that represents hope for us. This links the idea of reproduction, of leaving something for the future, to the idea of hope itself. These themes often run in the same circles, as the return of spring from winter is a very familiar representation of hope for what is to come, or hope for brighter days after the dark. Having Kokoro outright state it for us means that we can now start thinking of the idea of returning fertility to the world as synonymous with hoping for the world to improve. This will make a lot of our other fertility link symbols, like flowers and water and even piloting, now also suggest hope or hopefulness as well. For flower imagery, there is of course the cherry blossoms once more, and their fleeting nature invoked directly this time. Um, we've been over that a lot, so we won't restate it. Um, there is also though the link to Kokoro and her desire for a child. 
Her stated goal had basically already been foreshadowed for us by her care of the greenhouse, by her already being someone who cultivates, who wants to bring forth life that is not normally found in their environment. In a way, she herself is that greenhouse. Just as the real one is itself sheltered within the greater biodome, so Kokoro is sheltered within that biodome and also the social circle and support system around her. The greenhouse flowers then don't just represent fertility in a broad sense, but perhaps Kokoro's fertility specifically. It should be no surprise then that their relationship would come to this as it itself was mostly formed during their interactions in that greenhouse. Finally, I have structure mirroring on here. Um, we may or may not have this. I've noticed a pattern that might hint toward how things will develop, um, so I'll actually bring this back up when we get to speculation. So in What to Watch For, uh, we got to finally see the fate of Kokoro in the maternity book. Not the way I expected it to play out, but this was pretty dramatic and has extra consequences and even some extra development for Ikuno, so I'm kind of glad it went this way. Uh, we can also go ahead and scratch off the boy-girl relationships changing. Uh, the cat is out of the bag now. Now that is all that we can definitively scratch off. Um, I think we will add to watch for how Papa will react to the Nines news, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it involves the Nines themselves. We should watch for hints as to what is meant by human wannabe when referring to the council member. Additionally, we need to keep watch to see if the council is not as homogenous of an entity as we first assumed. Um, assuming that Hero's horns keep growing, since they seem to do so without piloting, I think we should watch to see how that alters the way he is treated, both by his squadmates and by Ape. In speculation, we actually have a few come true. Um, Nana and Hachi were indeed raised in a manner similar to Parasite's. Not exactly like our 13ers, I would wager, but it looks like they are parasites that are still around rather than being the same thing as the other adults. Uh, we did have a discussion between the parasites about reproduction. Still not sure they understand the mechanism, so we'll leave the one up about understanding sex uh, for now. Um, we also have this one about Dr. Franks trying to influence the 13ers toward understanding. I'm unsure if this counts as he relied on them figuring out reproduction and their instincts on their own, um, but he did arrange for the beach trip and their unrestrained puberty and their isolation, but I think it's a stretch that he might have made sure that Kokoro ended up with that maternity book. But he certainly set the stage, so we'll cross it off, as I think this will spur them to question and learn more about the world beyond what they've been told. Um, I had said that the Ape Council will be different in some way from other adults, um, but we're not gonna take that off yet. Yeah, it seems more likely now with the interaction with the princess, but we still aren't sure she wouldn't say the same thing about one of the adults, right? Not actually showing us what's under the mask I think makes this one probably true, uh, but we'll wait on it. So then, things to add. So much to add. Um, first of all, Coker is pregnant. I realize that will take a moment to confirm, but uh, she's pregnant. If sexuality was the only step they wanted to take here, we wouldn't need all the extra buildup about the maternity book and her speech about wanting a baby and leaving something for the future. More importantly, the pervasive fertility symbolism of the series and even surrounding Kokoro herself suggests this as a direction. But this also means that Kokoro will get taken away. She will be separated, maybe just from Mitsuru, maybe from the entire squad, 
maybe from anything resembling a normal parasite life. The severity of this taboo was made explicit this time, so even if she is not pregnant, she might still be separated from the rest. How they react to this might be the beginning of the rebellion that we keep anticipating. Now, I'm not saying that Kokoro will necessarily get to carry a child to term. I mean, I don't think there's a maternity award in Mistletine, and we're definitely not going to have some slice of life episode with baby showers. If she gets to keep the pregnancy, it's going to be on Ape's terms, and I don't expect them to be very accommodating. Now, we learned this time that adults do not have reproductive organs, that only children have them. We also basically learned that the parasites are not created, but are born the old-fashioned way. Thus, I have three speculations about how things work in the society, and all of them originate from this idea. Humanity's reproductive energy is perverted toward unnatural ends. First off, the adult's reproductive energy is being used not for them to reproduce, but for them to live their unnaturally long lives. I'm not sure how the science on that works, but it would make them fit with the next speculation, which is that the parasite's reproductive energy is what powers the Franks. The Franks don't just take their youth and leave them aged, they take the potential lifespans the parasites could be responsible for by bringing forth new life. Nana and 9-Alpha both said that gender and its biological side effects are necessary for powering the Franks, and we know from Ikuno's experiment that a pair of females can't make it work. It seems that being compatible enough to connect might be as simple as whether or not a pair could normally produce viable young. Rather than actually making those new lives, though, their babies are the missions that they fly in the Franks. Producing so many babies exacts a mighty toll on their body, spending their whole lives in a few years' time. This may be related to Zero Two's effects on non-hero stamen, uh, but I'll come back to that. The third part of the speculation is the missing segment of society. No, not the council, the children who vanish from Garden. We now can guess that parasites are born in the normal way, but we know that this is a huge taboo, so it's the kind of thing that Ape would keep hidden. We also know that the adults can't be the ones having kids, as they are missing those parts. So all that's left is those missing children, the ones who were unfit for parasite duty, are instead on breeding duty. Or some other horrible way that they are used to produce parasites, or maybe even the adults, but their reproductive energy and lives are probably being spent in a most unnatural and abusive way. Such a widespread corruption of normal fertility in these three ways would totally match the arid and unproductive wasteland of the world that we see, as though Earth itself drew back its bounty when faced with such horror. I might miss some details in there, but with what we learned this time and the thematic patterns to date, this seems like a reasonable enough thing to suggest. It actually makes me wonder if not piloting for a month has actually increased the sexuality of our parasites. Like, if that's where that energy usually goes, and it's been building up for a month plus instead, well, could that contribute to Mitsuru and Kokoro's escalation? Or to how lovey-dovey Hero and Zero Two have been? Was that part of what Dr. Franks wanted to see? Now, I have some additional speculation concerning our seeming exception. Zero Two says at the end that reproducing is not something that her body can do. Not sure exactly what that means, but it prompts a question. How, then, can she pilot a Franks? 
We know it's different with her, owing to the fate of the mini stamen before Hero, but how? Well, I don't understand exactly how she can pilot, per se, other than we can guess that the Franks and Klaxosaurs share some kind of link. But I think we can take the idea of the Franks extracting reproductive energy and guess that Zero Two's inability to create that energy herself means that the stamen have to overcompensate, burning them up quickly. This could end up being the reason that piloting alone is usually so dangerous, though I know I've made other guesses on that one. To take the matter of her devouring stamen in another direction though, this time she all but confirmed that killing Klaxosaurs to become more human was a lie, that this isn't really how it works. So what did make her become more human? Well, what if she was draining the humanness away from her stamen and taking it into herself? We don't see her at all in the gap from Garden until she shows up at the 13th Plantation. Who knows how human or monstrous she was during that journey? I'm only guessing this because it's after Hero survives her and she doesn't get a new stamen to drain that she starts to become more monstrous again. She can't drain Hero like she normally would, so she can't keep her humanity going to the same degree, which leads to all of her crisis that builds up to the confrontations in episode 12 and 14. Where that leaves her right now, I don't really know. Maybe it's only piloting without draining that ramps things up for her? Uh, maybe having her darling really does make that significant of a change. But this could at least explain why we went from the victory celebration of episodes 6 through 8 into the slow decline in episodes 10 through 12. All this does raise the question of whether Kokoro could even pilot if she actually is pregnant. Like, does the pregnancy supersede the connection and she is unable to connect? Because that could out her if they don't know already. Or is it possible the connection could interfere, causing a miscarriage? I feel like there's a good chance of incompatibility between pregnancy and piloting, uh, which is all that I will speculate for sure. Um, but we may not even get a chance to discover that if she's, you know, not pregnant or never pilots again. Finally, I have a thematic pattern that has kind of entered the realm of speculation. It's an example of structure mirroring, uh, but since we don't yet know if it'll bear out this way, um, it's still more speculative than a real theme that we can assume. So here's the idea. Mitsuru and Kokoro are an echo of Hero and Zero Two, and their upcoming fate will be a mirror and perhaps warning to Team Strelizia. Follow all the parallels here. Both groups started out with different partners and chose new partners based off of some attraction. In both groups, the girl kissed the guy first and unexpectedly, but the guy later got to return the kiss on their own terms and by taking the initiative. Both girls have initiated stampede mode, briefly for Kokoro, and both have also been interrupted from stampede mode by their stamen. Both teams have another parasite who crushes on one of their members, and these outside crushes have both been confrontational with their perceived rival. Both groups have a promise breaker, and in both cases there was fallout. Both pairs complement each other by shoring up the other's flaws. Uh, both girls think the idea of leaving something for the future is a beautiful idea. And both groups are hiding things from the others and are at risk from Papa's ire. Hero's horns and Kokoro and Mitsuru's sexual congress are both things they will try to keep hidden and are both things that would almost certainly cause Ape to intervene. Relationship-wise, Kokoro and Mitsuru both started later than Hero and Zero Two, 
and have progressed further, in a sense, which suggests that they are the advance guard for Hero and Zero Two's story. That is, they will get to a point in their own story before Team Strelizia does, which means that they will get a chance to see what's coming. This may mean that some disaster befalls Kokoro Mitsuru, but the foreknowledge of it allows Hero and Zero Two to avoid the same fate. Or it could be some triumph instead. Kokoro does get pregnant and finds a way to keep it, which inspires Hero and Zero Two to find a way for Zero Two to bear her own young. Or it could be something more mundane. The point is, I think the mirroring is intentional, and by moving Kokoro and Mitsuru ahead, they will be the foreshadowing echo of what Hero and Zero Two will later have to face themselves. I don't know what yet, but let's keep an eye out for that pattern. So, that is it for today. Like I said there at the end, I don't really know what's up next. All I do know is, brace yourselves. The storm is coming, and it's gonna be ugly. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.